Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Stephen Williams, the author of the Prose Edda series, two novels, Scott E. and Tira. I'll introduce Tira today, since it's the latest one. Thrice burned, thrice reborn. Long ago, a creature imbued with great power committed genocide against the unsuspecting dark elf families of Svartalfheim. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing. Thousands were killed. Few survived. One family escaped to Midgard. But the realm of humans is an unkind place for dark elves. And the creature that attacks Svartalfheim is still out there. Hundreds of years after the genocide, the young dark elf Tira lives with her adopted human father on an island in Midgard. But after an encounter with three malevolent Valkyries seeking Tira's Bifrost key left to her by her blood parents, Tira is forced to embark on a journey to save Swart Elfheim and confront her past, present, and future. Tira's strange ancestry is at the root of her problems, but could it also be her salvation. She's intelligent, determined, and gifted with powers unique to her bloodline. To save her people, she will have to do that which is most difficult, figure out who she is and what she stands for while facing some of the most powerful adversaries in all the realms. The story of Tira places readers in the world of Norse mythology, but reverses an age-old trope of portraying dark elves as villains. We all wonder who we are, what we are meant to do, and if our lives have meaning, Tira's journey is about answering those questions while fighting to save the lives of her own marginalized race. Stephen Greer Williams is an avid traveler, amateur cook, and fantasy author. He serves on the Harrisburg School Board and is the Associate Director for the Pennsylvania Statewide After School Youth Development Network. He's a graduate from Northwestern University and lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with his wife, Danielle. Stephen, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. That was wonderful. So, did I pronounce Svartalfheim correctly? Yeah, for the most part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> How would you say it? <laughs> yeah, I think you, you roll the R a little bit. Svartalfheim. Svartalfheim. So, I got to yeah. say, like a Viking. <laughs> yeah. Maybe have a little bit of uh, mead and have one of those horned helmets <laughs> on and then say it. <laughs> it's funny you say that because uh, the character in the book, Tira, her family, well, her human family, they're mead, uh, they, they make and sell mead throughout Midgard. So I see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do they brand it? Does it come in a special bottle or? <laughs> uh, it, it is well known from that family. However, uh, at the point at which the story begins, it has their 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 family business has diminished over the years. Nice. But at one point, it was uh, the standard. So one of the things that that struck me about this, the dark elves, I remember in my youth playing Dungeons and Dragons created by Gary Gygax out of Wisconsin. Dungeons and Dragons, one of the early scenarios dealt with the dark elves. Mm-hmm. The dark elves being villains, they lived deep under the earth, they were evil, and uh, they were fascinating creatures, but ma- magically very powerful. Mm-hmm. And so they were great adversaries. And some of the favorite scenarios that we all played uh, back then were to combat these people. So tell us a little bit about the dark elves and and the trope that you've discussed here. Sure, yeah, so... <clears throat> In this story, well, in, in fantasy in general, just as you stated, you know, 
dark elves have historically been portrayed as villains or at least mildly malevolent or mischievous. And, you know, I wanted to approach this story by flipping that trope on its head and also uh, allowing for Tira and the dark elves by extension to serve as representatives of folks from marginalized communities, um, which plays off of some themes that I had established in the first story. But I felt this was a bit more introspective in Tira. And so I, I, I really wanted to, you know, approach it from that capacity. So Tira and the Dark Elves, by extension, as I stated, are representative of folks from, you know, different communities that historically have um, not had the greatest advantages per, you know, what happens in the United States, at least. And so uh, and I thought Dark Elves could be a, a good vehicle for telling that story. So that, that was my thinking. I'm going to execute on it uh, as best I could. We'll see what people say <laughs> when they <laughs> provide, you know, feedback. But I, I think, you know, I got the point across. Yeah. So how does this vary from Skadi, your first novel? Yeah. So it actually takes place a few months prior to the events of Skadi, although, you know, I try and stress that it's not a prequel. Uh, it just chronologically takes place a few months before the events. Um, and eventually I do want to have uh, bring these characters together. But you know, it's about world building. It's about telling individual stories that do overlap. There's characters that are in each uh, story that, that show up in each respective story. Um, and whereas Skadi focused more on the idea of, you know, being an agent of change or an advocate for a community, you know, this story is about recognizing that you as an individual uh, have value and, and strengths uh, and that, you know, you should lean into those and allow the world to see them. So for the audience, now I know the answer to this because uh, <laughs> we, we've, uh, we've been out to dinner a few times uh, with our spouses as well, but why Norse mythology? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, no, and that's a good question. It's a fascinating question. So first off, my wife and I got married in Iceland. Uh, we first went to Iceland in 2016 with some friends of ours. And that's where we got engaged. And when we came home and were planning our wedding, we were struggling to find a venue that met our aesthetic taste, but also our budget. <laughs> so one day while at a coffee shop local in Harrisburg, Danielle actually proposed that we go back to Iceland and have a destination wedding. And that's all I needed to hear. I was immediately on board. And so we decided to have a pared down, a very pared down wedding. So it wasn't going to be 50, 60, 100 people. It was going to be a much smaller affair. And by doing so, we ended up having a, an affordable wedding <laughs> that met the taste, you know, that, that, that really just, uh, we really enjoyed. And it was beautiful and uh, met what we were looking for uh, here. But we had to do it abroad. Anyway, <clears throat> We had about 20 folks there, my immediate family, some close friends, and my cousin, uh, and same with Danielle. But while we were in Iceland on both trips, so 2016 and then the following year when we got married, we visited um, some saga museums and other uh, cultural, culturally unique places uh, for the folks in Iceland. And that's where I started to, started to fall in love with the mythology that um, was born out of that place. So not a lot of folks know this, and the reason my series is called the Prose Edda series is because the Prose Edda is the original text of Norse mythology, and it was written by an Icelandic historian 
uh, back in the 1300s, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, named Snorri Sturluson. And so, um, so anyway, that that's sort of what led up to it. And when I started really digging into it, I realized just how much of our modern day fantasy uh, finds its origins or inspirations from Norse mythology, such as Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, all a lot of Neil Gaiman. In fact, I did a lot of reading of Neil Gaiman when I was working on my stories. And so Norse mythology is just fascinating and a bit underrated uh, as a primary vehicle for storytelling, even though it has influenced so much. Absolutely. I have to ask you, did your wedding guests show up in long ships and drink mead? (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Anyway, on that note, we are going to take a break. We're talking to Stephen Williams. We'll be right back. Explore Sunbury Press books and find the work of talented authors in many genres. Ars Metaphysica is our spiritual, new age, and metaphysical fiction imprint. Among our titles, works by Kareem El Kusa, such as The Kabbalistic Visions and Phoenician Code, Chris Fenwick's The 100th Human, and Michelle Willard Hoffer's The ABCs of Narcissism, Soaring Past Toxic Partners. Find these and other intriguing works at the Ars Metaphysica tab and all works of nonfiction and fiction at sunburypress.com. We're back talking to Stephen Williams, the author of the Prose Edda series. Let's talk about some of this Norse mythology that that you pull from. Uh, you were discussing how it's underappreciated. In my experience, you know, I, I was exposed to it in my youth, and uh, I connected it with Tolkien, and mm-hmm. also and also the Dungeons and Dragons that uh, that I played as a as a kid. But I mean, how how did how do you think it's underappreciated? I just, <clears throat> sorry, I think that, you know, at least in the States, when people think of mythology, at least for me and my experience growing up, the first thing that came to mind would have been Greek mythology, and then maybe Roman mythology, and then maybe Egyptian mythology. But Norse mythology, I think for a lot of folks, their first interaction with it is in the Marvel movies. And so you have Thor and Odin in the Marvel movies. And Loki, and I think I think for most people that's fine. In fact, that was fine for me too. I, I thought it was fun. I didn't really need to know more. But you know, there is a whole lot more to the mythology, and it's an extremely strange one as well. Uh, that once you start picking, uh, reading up, <clears throat> reading the different texts like the Prosetta or the Poetic Edda or any, you know, even some occasional Neil Gaiman you start to realize how much deeper and more interesting it is than just what is portrayed in the Marvel films. And so that's what I wanted to express uh, in my stories. Now I will say full disclosure, I take some creative liberties, but for the most part, I try to stay faithful to the actual mythology, but rather than focus on the gods of the mythology, I focus on the people who live within that mythology. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I vary uh, or differ a little bit in terms of, you know, what would be portrayed normally if someone were writing a mythology story. Yeah. No, I'm finding this conversation interesting because, you know, I grew up uh, in a different situation and maybe I connected early on more so with Norse and Greek mythology. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we have Woden's Tag or Wednesday, Tor's Tag, Thursday. So it is part of our culture and it's always been there. But you're right. I think a lot of people are ignorant to the the blend of Norse and um, and other oh, cultures. Yeah. I mean, yep. the, I mean, the Vikings invaded England and in quite a bit of uh, early. Oh, and yeah, yeah and Britain. if you look at Leif Erikson, 
you know, folks like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vikings came to the, well, I, you wouldn't call it the United States, but our continent, <laughs> right? You know, long before Columbus, you know, and and so uh, there is this, you know, this interesting component to Vikings and Norse mythology that I think gets a little bit overshadowed when it comes to other mythologies, at least in our country. I want to say in the United States, it's probably not the case in Nordic countries. <laughs> right, right. So if I was somebody in Norway, how do you think I'd react to your your novels? I would hope that they would see them as uh, being respectful and engaging with the mythology, uh, honestly. Uh, I will say that when I was writing the first one, at least, I sent it to a woman who lives in Iceland, not Norway, but Iceland, and had her uh, provide some feedback because I did want to be respectful uh, to the mythology, similar to how, you know, if someone was writing a story about, say, uh, folks from the United States or, or, you know, Native Americans or anything, I wouldn't want someone to just totally write something that is full of falsehoods. So I tried to, now, of course, it is mythology, but I wanted to be respectful. So and she provided some good feedback, which I incorporated into the story. I also met two gentlemen from Iceland while at a book signing last year, and they took it home with them. Well, the son did. And he emailed me a couple of weeks later saying he was enjoying the story. So I'm, I'm inclined to think they would like it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's going to range. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, wonder if we can get this translated and sell it <laughs> over there. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, that would be cool. Now, the the other thing that struck me as you were talking, and I'm just thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm more of a historian, uh, thinking about the impacts of that Norse culture, and the um, it's it's almost like they inherited the Neolithic culture that had been across Northern Europe since even most of most of Western Europe. Um, but I don't know that it's as appreciated. I mean, here was a culture that did write down their history. Mm-hmm. They were prolific traders. They were seafaring, like you said, came to the Americas before Columbus. Maybe Columbus mm-hmm. doesn't even get the idea of America being mm-hmm. there unless the Norse had already been there and there had been, you know, talk about it. So... Yeah, there's, there's, um, oh yeah, yeah. For some reason, we've we've valued the, you know, the Italian slash Spaniard Christopher Columbus over Leif Erikson, and uh, maybe there's maybe it's because permanent settlement didn't stick so so well with the Norse, but um, yeah, mm-hmm. discovery certainly occurred. And, mm-hmm. So I guess the next question is, uh, where are you going with this? Where, where do you see uh, this developing? How many more books are in this series? And Yeah, no, that that's a really good question. So I am presently writing the third installment, which is a direct sequel to the first book, Scott E. Um, and without providing or giving any spoilers, I will say that there are uh, characters and individuals from uh, Norse mythology and um, old myths, tale, mythic tales uh, that make appearances and have actually pretty significant roles in this story uh, that I think a lot of people are going to read and say, oh, wow, <laughs> I, that, that's, the, that's the expression that I want people to have or the, the, the feeling that I want people to have and take away from, the second, from this third book. But in terms of the entire series, I think I'd originally planned for eight, 
Um, I will say that I think some of those are going to be turned into uh, some of some of those stories might be merged uh, because eight feels like a lot, but we'll see. Um, but I do know where I want to take this. There's a natural conclusion built in Norse mythology, which is Ragnarok. And so each story is inching its way towards that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ragnarok and Fimblewinter, which is the precursor to Ragnarok, uh, has an, plays a role in the decisions that a lot of the primary characters, whether they be pr- uh, protagonists or antagonists, it plays a role in a lot of the decisions that each of those folks make. So, for example... Well, no, I can't say that. I don't want to spoil anything. But a lot of the decisions that folks are making are based on the fact that Ragnarok is coming. And so that that's what drives the plot forward. And what I don't want to do is, once Ragnarok has hit, artificially try and keep the story alive. Um, I think we're seeing what that looks like with the Marvel movies, for example, which uh, are kind of in this post-conclusion you know, conclusion place. And it's sort of straggling and trying to find its footing. And I, I want to not do that with my own series. So I want to hit a point where it's done and then perhaps engage with a new um, set of stories. Right. Totally apart. We're talking to Stephen Williams. We'll be right back after the break. Sunbury Press Books is your home for the writings of independent authors. Loch Ness Books is our young adult imprint, including Joe Harvey's Summer Changes Everything, Deanne Baker's The Boaters Club, and Arcane Maurer's Forbidden Powers series. Find these and other books by diverse authors at sunburypress.com. We're back with novelist Stephen Williams, the author of the Prose Edda series. Stephen, I've been to a number of writers' conferences recently as a, as a publisher, and also as a historian and dealing with historical fiction and all these kinds of issues. And it's really bantered about, talked about very seriously about the concept of cultural appropriation, where an author of one group apparently can no longer write about or imagine ash, uh, characters in another group to which they do not belong personally. I was wondering how you feel about that subject. Yeah, no, that's a that's a big one. That's a, <laughs> you guys are ending on a, a pretty weighty topic. Um, but yeah, I think you know cultural appropriation is something that we all need to reckon with. And I think there is a difference between cul- cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. And the difference for me is appropriation is when you are not of a certain subgroup and you receive accolades for either writing or cooking in that space or any other creative endeavor uh, without giving credit to the folks that have inspired it. And you're, you're overshadowing the folks that um, are responsible for and own this, uh, this culture. You know, you see a lot of this in prior to the break or during the break, we were talking about, you know, David Chang and his restaurants and, and he talks a lot about this as well. And the idea is that, you know, folks who usually are white um, and usually men uh, get a lot of credit for, you know, partaking in cultures that are not their own. And the folks that are in that culture don't get, you know, the awards and accolades. That's cultural appropriation. Cultural appreciation for me is, you know, you are inspired by and it influences what you're doing. But you are still paying homage and recognize the value and don't uh, take the lead in terms of what that other culture has put forth. 
and that's you know where I'm trying to operate in with respect to uh, my stories. Am I a person from Iceland? No. (laughs) 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 No. Uh, Am I Icelandic in uh, origin? Like, do I have Icelandic heritage? No. Um, And am I overshadowing Icelandic people with my books? Also, no. And so I would argue that, you know, where I'm approaching this is from cultural appreciation. I appreciate the values of you know, the Nordic culture, uh, the Icelandic people, uh, the mythology that's born out of that area. But, you know, I I am seeing the myths and tales as vehicles for telling stories that lift up uh, people. And for example, Skadi is about advocacy uh, and Tira is about identity. And so, you know, I think cultural cultural appropriation is something that really should be taken seriously because it has disenfranchise so many, but cultural appreciation is something that we should talk more about uh, because it does allow for lifting up other types of folks. I love I love that you describe it that way as cultural appreciation. I wish we had talked before I was at that writer's conference in Philadelphia because I would have been even uh, better at answering the question because I was on a panel and here I am in the city at Drexel and uh, it's a pretty diverse group, pretty diverse panel and I, you know, they started talking about cultural appropriation and marginalized groups, and so then they they asked Lawrence, "What do you think?" <laughs> I have to tell you, you know, I'm a white middle aged man <laughs> sitting up, up there, and you know, it's like, okay, let's ask this guy what he thinks. And so I, I answered as best I could, but what I said was, I I think we should be careful that we don't stifle creativity to the point where we cannot imagine being something we are not. You know, really good writers can imagine, can do research and imagine and write well anything that they want to create. Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, and what we lose when we get into our boxes and we try to segment and, and protect too much, we lose the opportunity to be empathetic of one another. So yeah. that was my I, answer, I, I, but I wish I had I said cultural appreciation as well yeah. instead of appropriation. That, that kind of, I think between our two answers, maybe there's a... I would be inclined to agree with you. I just think that in our country, so I think some countries might be a little better at this or more open to the idea of it, but we have a tendency to overvalue the contributions of you know white men, and no offense, but you know, and undervalue the contributions of anyone that's not that. And so that's where the dangers of cultural appropriation start to slip in. Uh, cultural appreciation, there's this, uh, if, if, if we leaned more in that space, I think uh, we would be much better overall. And the idea of cultural appropriation would be less of a point of contention because people would be writing or cooking or doing any sort of creative endeavor that uh, respects, you know, the origins of it. Um, and I, yeah, that, that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, no, I, I think you've given me some talking points for the next time. I'm on a <laughs> panel and I get asked that question. So thank you for that. Yep, no problem. Yeah, so we, we have a few minutes left. I, I wanted to close with you know what you're doing with this series, maybe promoting yourself and your activities. I know we had a wonderful book release at that coffee shop downtown, and, and that was very well done. Certainly the food and wine was superb. (laughs) So I'm hoping you have a few more of those that I'm guessing it gets a little expensive. (laughs) Yeah. So I will say, um, I, I was benefit. I benefited from a creative, uh, grant that I received through the Pennsylvania council for the arts. 
and I use I put that towards uh, promoting and working on my series, uh, and that was really nice. A friend of mine, she pointed me in that direction. She's a local artist, and so I use that to support some of these uh, book signings and especially the um, the book release party that you're referencing. But yeah, I'm 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 going on a book tour. I'm actually. Uh, engaged on a book tour and right after this call I'm heading to another book signing at 12 um, but you know I was also part of the um, Midtown Scholars Harrisburg Book Fest which is super exciting they asked me to be a part of it which was a nice uh, change um, and because usually it's me reaching out to all these places and saying hey will you will you let me sell my books at your right. uh, coffee shop for two hours please <laughs> <laughs> but you know having the Midtown Scholar reach out to me was you know really this you know I hate to say it, but like stamp of approval or, or just really this kind of like, you know, recognition that I'm moving in the right direction. Uh, and so um, I'm doing the book signings. I also have a strong social media presence where I, I use that to scaffold uh, these in-person events. So everything that I do in person, I always promote online. And then also on the back end, you know, the pictures that are take that I take during the event, I'll, I'll put on uh, social media as well. And, you know, I, I really do. And I really stick to one or two social media platforms. So I'm not all over the place. I don't have a TikTok and I don't have Twitter, uh, but I do really engage on Facebook and on Instagram. And um, I'm building out an email list uh, at these in-person events as well so that I can keep on keeping people informed uh, with respect to what I'm doing presently and then what books I have planned for the future. You know, I believe it's always great to start, you know, in that local community become a hero there and then spiral spiral your way out and about mm -hmm. so how how far have you ranged now with this series and and how has the reaction been outside of hometown yeah so and you're right you know at my first book signing tour for scotty i went all the way to new york city and that you know there was a few people that showed up but there were people that i already knew that lived in the city and so i, I sort of re I, I thought, how, I, how, should I, how should I change going forward? And I focused more locally for the second book tour, uh, which was the right move, because then you start building that foundation, uh, and then you can, the outgrowth can occur later. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, honestly, I think people really are enjoying the series. I have received some really positive feedback. I received some pretty negative feedback. But for the most part, it seems like people are enjoying the story. And I know that you're going to get both those extremes with respect to any sort of creative endeavor. I mean, Shakespeare had tomatoes grow thrown at him. So uh, so I'm OK with that. But I, I do think people are enjoying the series. And I think that they are recognizing that there's heart within the story with between the characters, that this is less about, you know, high fantasy and more about character interaction and sure. love and friendship. Yeah, no, I, I think the thread that's in here is also very contemporary, which which makes it relevant to the current mm -hmm. conversations we're all having. Yep, yep, yep. And, that, and that's on purpose. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, we're going to wrap up here in just a minute or two, but if you could tease us, what's what's going to be the title of book three when it comes out? <laughs> uh, yes, I, okay, I'll, I'll give it. It's going to be Scotty and the Geet. And the Geet, okay. G-E-A-T. Okay, I'll add it to the list of our, our pipeline. We've been talking to Stephen Williams. Stephen, anything else you'd like to leave us with before we break? Uh, no, I, I will say I'm an avid traveler. You know, Iceland wasn't the only country I've been to. And so I would encourage any folks who are listening to this uh, to get out and try and see the world if your time and finances allow. I second that 
travel is one of the greatest ways to educate yourself, for sure. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.